Hello, it's Matt Tosaro back with the OWASP podcast, and I've got a good one for you with this episode. I got to reconnect with Jerry Hoff, who I met many years ago in the OWASP community. He's back and has some rather interesting things to say, with some especially insightful conversation about how AppSec is viewed from a CISO's perspective, as well as at scale. We cover a wide range of topics, and I think you'll find some nice wisdom nuggets spread throughout the episode, so make sure you stay till the end. Enjoy! Hi, this is Matt Tassaro, and we're here for another episode of the OWASP podcast, and I have the special pleasure of having Jerry Hoff with me today. I've known Jerry for a long time. It's been a while, actually, since I've seen him. We bumped into each other recently at RSA. And after a conversation with him, I had to get him on. So, Jerry, for the people who aren't lucky enough to know you, can you give us a brief background so they understand where this conversation is coming from? Certainly. And, Matt, thank you very much for inviting me on the show. Hello, everybody. Hello, all OWASP members and listeners who are listening to the podcast. My name is Jerry Hoff. I used to do quite a bit of volunteer work with OWASP back in 2007 to 2010. I used to work for Aspect Security. Jeff Williams and Dave Wickers were my bosses. So naturally, I tend to gravitate towards OWASP. I've done AppSec in a variety of ways. I've built an AppSec company. I've sold an AppSec company. I've done a lot of AppSec training. When it comes to OWASP, I used to oversee the webgoat.net project, the antisammy.net project, and the OWASP AppSec tutorial series, which is a bit defunct at the moment, but I'm hoping to revive that. I worked at White Hat Security after that. I was recruited by Sony. They were kind enough to invite me to join their team. So I moved to Japan and I was overseeing the security program for Sony Electronics and Sony Semiconductor and other Sony companies for about six years was the global senior security architect at another Japanese company called NTT. And uh, that brings us up to the current moment. Awesome. So one of the things we were chatting about prior to this recording was about some of the challenges that the sort of the upper end of management, the CISO tier, so to speak, face with AppSec. And you brought up a, a ton of good points. So I'd like to rewind time a bit and go back and cover that. So where should we start? Well, why don't we just start at the challenges that CISOs are facing. So I'm going to kind of give my opinion and I'm going to give my experience, but I'll mention everything I say is not related to any specific company. I've done quite a bit of work across many different companies. I've consulted for many different companies. So everything I'll be talking about is kind of a summary of my observations across the industry. But, you know, I think to set the background, Matt, I don't think it's controversial to say that most CISOs actually come from a network security or sysadmin background. And that has no fault of the CISOs. It's just it happens to be the, you know, if we look at security being the AppSec portion and the network security portion, the network security side and sysadmin side is always, you know, larger. It's kind of the more traditional side. So as an effect, most CISOs come from that. And again, no fault of their own, but it does, as we both know, these are totally different worlds, right? The same paradigms and axioms that we might have on the network security side are usually very different on the AppSec side. So that's setting the stage. And I think some folks, some CISOs see their responsibility at ending almost at the networking side, right? So 
I'll talk to many CISOs and Matt, I'd love to know your opinion on this, but they'll say, yeah, we want to make sure that authentication works up until the application. And then after that, it's up to the individual developers or business units to provide for their security. It's almost like the private property line from a physical world. So is that something that you see as well, Matt, or what are your, what are your observations? I've run a lot of different AppSec programs at a lot of different places. And I mean, you're the same way. Like we talk to a lot of people in the business. So I know well beyond just my range of background, just secondhand yeah. anyway. But mm -hmm. yeah, definitely it's been interesting. I'd say the most common answer is, yeah, yeah I got somebody who does that for me. And mm. they almost have to blindly trust whoever they bring in to do AppSec because it's yeah. really hard for them to evaluate. And I, it, particularly for like air quotes, more traditionally businesses that have a mm -hmm. fleet of desktop systems they have to worry about and yep. all the other things that come with being a CISO, physical security, you know, network security, all these other securities, it does kind of feel like AppSec is somewhat of an also ran. And then I think we've reached an inflection point, but there's always that lag of time between the change in the world and, and then the world kind of catching up to the change that right. all of these companies that were never AppSec are doing AppSec. Like my yep. garage door opener could very well have a mobile app, right? And yep. suddenly the garage door company is also an app company and they've mm -hmm. never done app. And so there's a lot of people walking into this space and it's very new territory for them. That's a great way to put it. Everybody is in the same AppSec boat, so to speak. Everybody has software. Just like Mark Anderson said a long time ago, software is eating the world, right? Well, in AppSec, we're dealing with the indigestion of software eating the world because it is everywhere. And, you know, we can get into it, but there's usually quite a bit of thought and planning that needs to go into not just creating software, but maintaining it, being able to deal with the inevitable vulnerabilities, the aging, the wear and tear, the ultimate decommissioning. And that's something that most organizations I don't think have fully thought out in my observation. Yeah, I 100% agree with you. I heard a, a great quote that I'm going to alter a little bit that they were saying this about open source, but honestly, I think it's just generally true about software, that software is more like milk than it is wine. It doesn't age well. Oh, I love that. <laughs> I love that too. I heard that and I'm like, I am stealing that and I am using that. Because yeah. I think people think they put the check marks on done because the thing's out in production and I never have to touch it. But everything bit rots, you know, digital yep. things bit rot. And yep. that's a concept that I think a lot of people haven't realized who aren't like elbow deep or neck deep in the software world. Agreed, it, it bit rots and it bit rots, unfortunately, at scale. So large organizations have many, many, obviously sometimes hundreds, thousands, tens of thousands of individual websites, web applications, mobile applications, APIs, et cetera. So dealing with this at scale is definitely one of the big headaches for CISOs from what I've seen. In fact, I can tell you a very quick story. This was about a year and a half ago. A very, very large company that we all know and use almost every day contacted me and said, hey, we're trying to figure out what to do about our AppSec program. So they wanted to, to speak with me a bit. And I talked to their CISO and I threw out some of the normal suggestions, DAST, SAS, training, security champions, et cetera, et cetera. But yeah, he kind of indicated, yeah, we're trying all that stuff and none of it really seemed to do the job, unfortunately. So we had a good conversation, but I think at the end, he wasn't fully, he didn't find exactly what he was looking for. 
So I think that even in the largest and the most technologically savvy companies, there is this AppSec challenge that we're all dealing with. And I can give you my thoughts on maybe steps to deal with it, but I don't know. Have you had the same observation, Matt, or what are your thoughts? Oh, definitely. There's this very interesting contention, and it's just very unresolved right now when you talk to different companies. And, and like I said, you and I both know a lot of people that do AppSec in a lot of places. So you, you kind of get a vibe yep. for the industry. And the, the yeah. thing I've noticed is that there's sort of two camps. Mm -hmm. and, and it's almost like the mainframe centralized, decentralized thing that happened in computing, right? We have services, right. computers everywhere. And then, no, we have a big computer and we've gone back and <laughs> forth. And it feels right. like there's these two contending aspects of AppSec where mm -hmm. you have the one where you want this outside in view. I'm going to run a ton of tools. Mm -hmm. I want to watch everything the developers and the product teams do and yep. have some sort of measuring of it. This is a more traditional test the heck out of it kind of method, right? And mm -hmm. then there's nothing wrong with that. That's just one of the yeah. camps. And then mm -hmm. you have another camp that says, you know what, we, we want to empower the devs to do the right thing, but we're going to try to put up sort of fences around where they walk and do this paved path idea, right? Yep. And they make it easy for developers to choose the right thing. And then yeah. you have, you know, companies that are transitioning in either direction yep. based on, on events, right? Yeah. Agreed. Agreed. And, you know, even before we get to the dev portion of the problem, and I'll bring this up because, like I said, I did a lot of work with OWASP back in 2007, 8, 9, 10, 11, et cetera. And our focus was very much on the micro, which makes sense, right? We were looking at individual vulnerabilities. But if you're a CISO, you have to look at the macro picture, right? And so you almost start not even at the bits and bytes. You're not even looking at the code. You're starting with the governance model, right? And it can be even at the beginning, who has the right within the company to even register domains? I think it's well known that sales and marketing and this and that and whoever will go out and just register domains. And you can understand from a CISO's point of view, you're saying, what are even all the domains that we own, right? It's sometimes very tricky. I've employed pretty pretty pricey services that do attack surface management to try to even figure out where is everything, right? And you know, how do I know, you know, can I get some kind of an alert if somebody goes rogue within the organization and registers a domain? And these domains can be hosted all over the place. It's not like in the old days where they'd be in your infrastructure. People will open up cloud services here, they'll put it over here, et cetera. So the problem is getting more diffuse. If that's, is that kind of your observation as well? Absolutely. Yeah. Because what's the barrier to entry, right? In the old days, it was, you had to go talk to some crunchy Unix admin in a back room somewhere <laughs> and please, please put in a bind entry for me. Yeah. Right now you go clicky, clicky with a credit card on yep. cloud provider of your choice. And I have mm -hmm. DNS entries, right? Like <laughs> it has gotten so, it, it's very empowering, very when, empowering. You, when you're you know, air quotes doing the right thing, but it mm -hmm. also empowers people to do the wrong thing at, at speed and scale. Right. And that's where things get really interesting. Absolutely. Yep. Speed and scale. And then even beyond that, once they've created whatever this happens to be, let's say they put up a WordPress website and put up, you know, some, something else who owns it right? This is also a problem. Is it the IT staff that's, that owns it? Or is it a third party that was hired by the business unit that owns it? Is it the business unit that owns it? And the reason why this is important is who's responsible for the long-term maintenance? Who's responsible to make sure that vulnerabilities are fixed within the allotted time set of your AppSec policy? And we didn't even get into the creation of the policy, but there needs to be obviously a policy that dictates what are the rules around 
owning these very risky web assets and digital assets that we see vulnerabilities in all the time. And then of course, the other big thing is what is the tipping point on decommissioning? This is one thing that I often see people overlook or companies overlook. There is a certain point at which the benefit of a site is overshadowed by the risk of that site. If you have a site that's hanging out there or an API or a mobile application, whatever it is, let's just call it a generic digital asset that you have out there, there is a cer certain point at which the risk sometimes way overshadows whatever benefit you might get getting out. And I don't know that many, some companies do, but I don't know that many companies have a firm way of saying the cons now outweigh the pros. We need to get rid of this site. Have you seen that a lot, Matt, or what are your thoughts? Yeah, no, that I've not seen the pros outweigh the cons item that I can recall ever. I have seen yeah. the ownership thing be very interesting. At one place I worked, there was a single sign-on system that was deployed in front of 200 odd apps, I think, or it was somewhere around 200 odd apps. But mm -hmm. unfortunately, because of the nature of the vulnerability, the yeah. app side of it had to fix it, not the SSO side. So now we have uh -huh. 200 places to go fix a thing. And so I was charged <laughs> with sort of prioritizing the order in which to fix these things. So obviously fix right. the scariest first, the least scariest last, blah, blah, blah. Right. Standard, right. standard thing. So I made this giant spreadsheet called the fear factor mm -hmm. um, based on a, an old TV show name and decided that, you know, what made this criteria and made a, a risk score for everybody and then started, you know, working the list. And yep. it turned out that as I got down to those bottom entries, Nobody owned them. Nobody yeah. owned them at all. I mean, I'm trying, I'm, I'm turning over rocks. I'm talking to the, the business continuity people and saying like, do you know who owns this thing? And nobody, nobody had any mm -hmm. idea. So I had pinged the head of the project management group because I figured, hey, they ought to know. And they, I, I don't know if they were busy or if they were honestly ditching me. Um, mm -hmm. But I, I finally, <laughs> when I couldn't get an answer out of them, I went and physically sat in their office yeah, reading a book until they showed up. And then I put up the book and said, Hey, hey, how's that? How are you doing? I have to report to the CIO later this week. And uh, mm -hmm. I need owners for these. So if I don't hear from you, I'm just going to put your name down for them. And they were yep. like, give me that list. And they wrote people's names and handed it back to me. So thank you. And then I went and told everybody what new app they just owned. Because <laughs> 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 you go to these poor PMs, I felt bad, but yeah. you, know, you go to the poor PMs and say, hey, by the way, you own the whatever app. And they're like, what is that? I'm like, honestly, I don't know, but we need to find out who's, if we even have a developer anymore for it, where the code is, exactly. you know, like, and, and there was a handful of them that we just retired because we couldn't find owners. We weren't even sure if they were being used. It, mm -hmm. It's amazing. And this was not, you know, 200 apps is, is child's play for Child like play. a global, a global sure. giant, <laughs> a, a global, yeah, a multinational conglomerate can have tens of thousands of sites in every language under the sun, in every framework under the sun, you know, almost like an archaeological excavation sometimes to find the code, <laughs> you know, you've got internal applications that were made external facing and vice versa. I mean, it's, it's a mess. And so when you do, let's say, a tax service management on a company like this, and you find 10,000, 20,000, 30,000 sites, it's very difficult, especially across a portfolio of companies. 
right? You're like, well, I know this is owned by the overall group, but I don't know which individual company in the group might own it. So it does get very, very tricky. Absolutely. And so that's why this needs to be done at the beginning. I'm a big fan of, of strong governance, strong IT governance, strong governance in general, but you need to at least, even if you've had poor governance in the past, this is something that all CISOs can start from the present and say, we need to have very strong governance. There needs to be very strict rules as to who can register a domain on behalf of the organization, who can host an application, make major changes to an application, et cetera. And there also needs to be this sense of who is the owner and then what are the assets that can be used? And by assets, I mean human assets. Who who are the responsible parties that actually have free time or some availability to make these fixes? Because you know as well as I do, you'll have teams that will go from you know, web application to web application to web application to web application. So now you find a vulnerability in something that was written five years ago that needs to be patched. Who even knows how to do that? Who Do you even have the people who understand that language? Are they available? All of that needs to be thought out in advance, which is why when I start off in a company looking at, let's say, application security, I don't start at like best coding practices or anything else like that. That's way later. The beginning is we need an inventory. What is the policy? And the policy usually comes from an overall risk assessment. So there's kind of a order of operations, right? But when you get down to the inventory, then you need to understand, okay, from this inventory, can we prune any of this? So that's like the, my first thought, right? Attack surface management is really attack surface reduction, right? What can we prune out without even worrying about it? Because when you can prune things, you don't need to pen test it. You don't need to fix vulnerabilities in it. You just decommission it, right? And then what you have to when you decommission it, you've got to make sure that the domain name doesn't all of a sudden go stale and then some attacker picks it up and then re-registers it and now uses it at your expense, et cetera. So what can you prune? What can you consolidate? Lots of sales and marketing websites all over the place. If they can be consolidated under one platform, you've now reduced the avenues of attack for an attacker. And so after you've pruned, after you've consolidated, what can you flatten? There's lots of WordPress sites out there that have unnecessary risk, right? I'm not picking on WordPress, right? I'm just saying in general, if you've got a bunch of server-side um, functionality, most a lot of websites just kind of sit there and there might be a contact form or something else, but you have all of this unnecessary risk just hanging out there where if you can flatten those pages, just make them static, you know, with maybe some API supporting a bunch of websites, you're again, you're greatly reducing your risk. What, what do you think about that, Matt? Wow, you are bringing back memories. I have, <laughs> I've jotted a couple notes. Um, oh, good. You said internal website, and I just, I almost snickered on Mike because I remember working for a place that had an mm -hmm. internal site. They said, the site is internal. I'm like, okay. And I happened to be traveling out of the country at the time. And yeah. I needed to use that site. And I thought, oh, I don't have a VPN. What am I going to do? And I'm like, well, let's just see. And I mm -hmm. put in the URL and I logged in. Mm -hmm. So for that project manager, internal meant only employees used it. Yeah. Not on the internet. Not on the internet. It was just like, oh, 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 that's what you mean by internal. We got to, we got to have to have like definitions here. <laughs> like, holy cow. It, that's the, really uh, common. That's really oh, common. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. And the, the sort of the movement from uh, app to app of Teams 
I have experienced that too, where there was a shared service that did a fairly important security function that the team that wrote it was like three apps away mm -hmm. and dispersed and broken up and doing other different things. And then this poor random team was sort of handed this bag of like, you need to keep this running. We find an issue in that service. Mm -hmm. That team didn't even write the code. I mean, they yeah. wrote in the same language, right? They're both there. They were Java people in this particular case. They're, so they're Java right. people, but that doesn't mean you have a clue how that thing works in the innards. And if you mm -hmm. tinker with it, like what's going to break. And by the way, like tons of other apps within this very large business use it. Yeah. <laughs> what a, what an awful position to be put in as a developer. Like, I want you to tinker with this thing that you didn't write. You don't really understand. And if it breaks, it's going to blow up tons of the company. Have fun with that. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I used to work in a financial services and there'd always be some server on the back that was running COBOL and some mainframe operating system. And I would say, Hey, what is that? Who's responsible for that? They're like, well, we, nobody touches it. We're afraid to touch it, but if it ever goes down, the company is sunk. So we definitely have all these legacy systems. And so for that reason, I'm also a big fan. And then this is going to be a little bit heretical potentially, but I'm a big fan of technology standardization as much as possible. So I've had to fight lots of fights with development teams and it's good to have these fights. Nobody was in the right. Nobody was in the wrong. It was a healthy discussion, which is okay. The development team wants to use a new technology, a new language, a new platform. And my contention is why? Can we make do with the technologies that we already have deployed to minimize the complexity of the environment, right? I want to reduce the number of languages, reduce the number of frameworks, reduce the number of operating systems, because that complexity, again, it's very hard to maintain. It's very hard to manage. It's very hard to pen test. It's very hard to see vulnerabilities. Some people will say, hey, you're interfering with the business's you know, progression, et cetera. And I'm saying, I don't want to interfere. The business has got to make money, but we should have at least the discussion to determine whether or not these new technologies are worth the risk that it will be to the organization. Oh, a hundred percent. Yeah. Oh, I've seen that so many times. I've seen a couple of groups do what I think is a fairly progressive thing where they allocate to a project so many technical points, almost like mm. points in a sprint. Yep. And you can spend those on new tech, but you can only spend a, a handful of them. So it sort of forces mm. some judicious decisions because you're right. I mean, developers and tech people like new stuff. Like I've, mm -hmm. I've wanted to write against MongoDB for years. I've never had a situation where it really made sense. So yeah. I just never have. But, you know, if I'm a full-time developer, I would probably have written something against Mongo just because I decided it was cool and I wanted to do that. Yep. <laughs> you know, and if yeah. I can convince management to let me, I'm going to do that all day long. It's natural. I mean, new technologies come out and anybody who loves technology, like we do, like our listeners do, et cetera, everybody wants to try it out. Of course we do. That's the first thing we always want to do is try it out, experiment with it, see what it can add, what value can it bring. But there is that, that risk. And we often overlook this risk. And this is something that's well known, even if you've ever read Batiste, it talks about this in economics, there's always this unseen cost. You see what is created, but you don't see what would have not been created, or you would have never seen the, the parallel universe, et cetera. And in security, we often don't see that risk. And you know that goes back to the way that we even look at risk. So we always have critical high, medium, low, right? But that's always in relationship to what? 
if you deal with many criticals across different systems, critical doesn't mean critical. There's no kind of objective standard. In order to do that, I've tried it before implementing risk quantification programs, but those are very, very hard to do. So if instead of critical high, medium, low, ideally, you'd like to say, this is your ex risk exposure in dollars or yen or euro or rumenbi, whatever. And you want to express it that way. That way you have a common language that the business side can understand. But getting there is very difficult and everybody will attack the math and everybody will raise fear, uncertainty, and doubt. And then you almost always go back to then, okay, can we just do the criticals at least? So <laughs> <laughs> I have a perfect example of that. So this was at Rackspace and one of our junior people had been tasked with testing this application and they mm -hmm. found SQL injection in it. Yeah. And it just so happened that at the time, myself and a couple of the senior people were off in meetings or just not at our desks. Mm. And the VP who was in charge of security and quality came by and said, Hey, well, you know, what, how's it going? I was checking with you guys. And it just, you know, a little pulse check with our product security group. Yep. Well, this junior person was like, Oh my goodness, I found SQL injection in this application. It's terrible. Yeah. Yep. And unfortunately this VP was very activating type of VP. And they were like, Oh, I'll call all hands. I got yanked yeah. out of a meeting. It was for a system to book conference rooms in the building we were in. Yep. Completely yep. unimportant. Vulnerability, yeah, SQL injection is terrible. Like SQL mm -hmm. injection on a login is OMG terrible, particularly if it's yep. an important app. But SQL injection in the thing that makes me book the room down the hall, it's annoying, but it's only going to hurt the internal employees of Rack if it really goes down. So do I care? No. <laughs> but, and unfortunately, as a, someone new to the field, yep. you don't have that idea of context. Somebody asked me one time, like, what would you teach somebody new? And I'm like, everything in security has to do with the context. Yeah. Like falling is not so bad if it's onto a mattress, if it's off of, you know, 300 foot cliff, it's a very different story, but it's still falling. Exactly. <laughs> right. I think we can all, that's almost, yeah, I always just expect that if somebody's new to security, their first year, they're going to be finding vulnerabilities and screaming and insisting that whatever vulnerability that they just saw has to be dealt with immediately. But it's only when you're a little bit older and grayer that you see the landscape of tens of millions of vulnerabilities everywhere. You say, okay, we're drowning in vulnerabilities. What we need to do is prioritize effectively. And the prioritization requires understanding the impact, which is where we go back to that quantification. But I don't know anybody who has a really good way of quantifying. I've looked at FAIR quite a bit. I've worked with people that do quite a bit of quantification for insurance companies, but the amount of overhead in really doing a, a risk quantification program, especially down to the vulnerability level, it's just beyond, I think, the capabilities and the budgets of most organizations. So I'm hoping that some genius comes out with a shorthand way of saying, hey, this is how to do it. And I've talked to some companies that have said, yeah, we're on the verge of that and some claim to do it, but it'll be very interesting to see when that happens. I would love to see that too, because you're right. I've The closest I can think of as a practical today implementation of that is the environmental additions you can make on CVSS, but that's yeah. labor intensive. And yeah. you have to really understand your stuff to even yeah. be able to make those calls. And then a lot mm -hmm. of those are still kind of, honestly, if you're in a security group making these decisions, they're just, you know, gut calls. You don't have evidence behind it. It's, oh, I know that system's pretty darn important. Or you have weird things like 
we did a, a bunch of threat modeling at Rackspace when I was there and slowly did the, basically the entire cloud that Rack was running. Um, and mm -hmm. so you have this, all of these pieces of threat models that we had done, but we only looked at the compute threat model or the block storage threat model or the yep. object store threat model. Yep. Well, we, we started taping them up on the wall mm -hmm. and connecting, you know, this calls out to cloud storage to do this thing. And so we'll, we'll put a little line there. And we, we made this kind of spider graph of literal, like taped on the wall and string things, yeah. um, but found out that come and i don't remember the service anymore it's been too many years but there was some mm -hmm. innocuous service that did something like took your customer id and gave you your billing address or something silly mm. like that that mm. pretty much every cloud service called right so you look at that in isolation it's, it, you know you give it an id it gives you an address there's a little pi-ish about that but it's not super scary but wait yeah. a minute every freaking part of our cloud calls that thing and by the way the team that that made that is like you know, two or three people. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> this is a great example of just the overwhelming complexity of all of these systems and the interconnectivity. And this is why if we go back to what we were talking about originally at the very beginning of this conversation about the kind of average CISO out there might come from a network security background or a sysadmin background where it's mainly in that world, again, I'm just saying these are different, you know, different animals altogether, but a port is usually open or closed, right? Something's either on or off. And when we try to explain the levels of nuance in terms of security in software, I think even CISOs, their eyes just glaze over like, okay, what do we need to fix? <laughs> like, or like what you said, Matt, who's going to take responsibility for this? <laughs> because it's overwhelming, especially for folks that don't exactly come from this crazy world of software development. They haven't seen how the sausage is made. And honestly, to even put that one step further, a lot of the times you also have to, well, I would say that a lot of CISOs wind up deprioritizing AppSec in general, not just because it's complicated and not just because it's hairy to understand, but because up until now, it's a little bit less likely to be attacked. And this is again, maybe heretical on an OWASP podcast, but if you compare it to a critical vulnerability in a window system where the bad guys can just spray and pray, right? Somebody's going to find that zero day or whatever it happens to be. They're going to reverse engineer a patch. They're going to figure out that vulnerability. They're going to weaponize it within 24 hours and they're going to start spraying and praying. Just keeping up with that is usually pushes a security program to its limit. And if you say, well, there are these very subtle vulnerabilities inside of our web applications, but the attacker has to like craft an individual attack for each one. I think a lot of CISOs say, well, why don't we just deal with the vulnerabilities that are subject to the spray and pray? at least in my experience. What do you think, Matt? Yeah, that is a, a major point. And I looked at it in an inverse way, but it's, it is the same perspective, just opposite. So if you think about network security or desktop security, you're right. It's commodity. Like mm -hmm. if you're a Cisco shop, you usually have all Cisco switches. You have people yep. that know Cisco in and out and they just yep. do that all day. And if you're, yep. a, you know, if you're fielding a 10,000, 35,000 Windows desktops, you have mm -hmm. people that they just live Windows and yep. all the nuances that come with that. But right. at least if you get somebody who's really good with Windows, it doesn't matter if they're doing employee one or employee 35,000's Windows box, it's a Windows mm -hmm. box. Yep. But every app is a snowflake. Every app I mean, is a snowflake. 
the only reason you wrote them is you couldn't buy them cots if you if you're sensible <laughs> like no one's going to rewrite right. windows now right i mean you just go buy it or mac or linux whatever os you want to use right but, like <laughs> the reason you write an app is because it didn't exist so by didn't definition exist. everything in your app portfolio is going to be unique and unique to you you can't and even therefore... take somebody off of a different you know like hire somebody out of a different company and bring them in and have them they'll know generalities but they won't yeah. know your specifics exactly like, and that, that's great and it, it, just to put a capsule on that though i would say this is going to change soon and what i'm thinking and we're probably already seeing this is that ai will be weaponized and be used potentially to find these snowflake vulnerabilities inside of snowflake applications and therefore it's going to render a giant new universe of vulnerabilities wide open, right? One day we're going to just wake up and say, all these vulnerabilities that we thought were not that critical or not that exploitable or not that easy to find are being found and being weaponized. And I'm hoping this doesn't happen, but I have a feeling it's going to happen. <laughs> That's well, the unfortunate it, truth. And maybe I'm the eternal optimist, but I also wonder the converse of that, right? Is mm -hmm. AI... AI, if you think about it from a high level, right, it's really good at just eating tons of data and making sense of it. So can we take this 2,000, 20,000 websites and apps and custom maids problem yep. that AppSec has and feed yep. all that into AI and at least have it do some crunching and tell us like, well, these are the things that look the most important or the least important to retire. This thing yep. is getting old. All those like software is really nice and AI super fancy software is really nice about reminding us about the stupid, like, Hey, yeah. by the way, you've had this website up like, <laughs> oh, I, I, for a while I worked for state government. If you look at LinkedIn, you can figure it out, but I worked for state government and there was a natural disaster that they threw up a website for. Mm -hmm. Well, I was working for the state government six years or so after that mm -hmm. natural disaster happened, we were still running the emergency site for it. Yep. yep. <laughs> like yep. The people have probably figured out what they're going to do about this natural disaster six years later. I mean, I'm sure there's still some people <laughs> impacted. It was pretty awful, but right. the, the need for that site to your point about retiring stuff, it wasn't yep. there anymore. Yeah. And I doubt yeah. it was getting any kind of traffic. So at least you could have some interesting things with AI saying, by the way, this marketing site has had 10,000 users in the last month. Three years ago, it was getting 300,000. Is that still worth it? Probably not. Why don't you retire that sucker? Excellent point. Yeah. And that goes back to the governance. That should be decided from the beginning. What are the conditions under which we're going to have the website up? And what are the conditions under which we will retire the website? That shouldn't be an ad hoc kind of emotional decision that people make on the fly when they happen to think about it. That should be a standard part of the process, right? When you build something new, ultimately you have to decide what are the conditions under which it's going to be rendered obsolete, let's say. And going back to your point, by the way, on AI, oh, I 100% agree. We will have AI attackers. We will have AI defenders. In fact, I think most socks at the moment are being augmented with AI. And I'm pretty sure, again, if you're a, somebody working at a SOC, don't hate me, but I'm thinking that most SOCs in the future will be primarily AI because the speed at which you will need to respond is going to just be beyond the capabilities of a human. So you'll have AI attackers, AI defenders, AI monitoring, AI defenses, AI self-healing applications. It's going to get pretty crazy, I think, in that world. 
especially, and I hate to bring this up, but as we get kind of the world seems to have more and more conflicts, like regional conflicts are seeming to grow into larger regional and then international and global conflicts. I am a bit scared about the day that there is a large conflict because a kinetic conflict will be precipitated by quite a bit of cyber conflict, right? That's what we've seen in the past. And every organization on the planet has lots of exploitable vulnerabilities at any given moment. AI being able to exploit those faster than humans can react, that's going to be an unpretty situation. And I think back to my pen testing days and some of the little cheats you could do. Go to a job site for a target company and see mm -hmm. what they're hiring. Oh, look, they're looking for Java devs who use WebSphere. Well, I bet yep. they have WebSphere there, right? Yep. But that was the yep. thing I had to remember to do. Yep. AI could do that for you and just tell you, well, hey, this big corp, what do they use? Oh, they're mostly a Java shop. It looks like they're investigating moving to Go or mm -hmm. maybe C Sharp, who knows, yeah. right? They, but it could tell you that based on a bunch of the OS, you know, open source in terms of available on the internet intelligence. That that could be ridiculously useful. Oh, it, I, you make a great point there, Matt. And it will be even beyond the technology choices, right? So yeah, they're using Java, they're using WebSphere. That's one thing. They'll be able to read in every single blog post and LinkedIn of every employee that you have. And then they're going to be able to say, oh, this particular company just has a brand new CEO with this management style and this wording. Oh, and it looks like there's a brand new dev who just started six months ago that's been job hopping. So probably a bit insecure about maybe a little bit on the nervous side. And oh, well, we can actually write an email, craft an email. This will be the weakest link in the chain. We'll send an email to this particular individual asking them to turn a certain feature on or off, et cetera. And so the psychological warfare already that we're seeing with business email compromise and things like that, it's going to get... It's going to get crazy, I think, especially also with AI rendered faces and voices and everything else. It's going to be attack on, on all dimensions on various organizations. Yeah, trust is going to take a pretty big hit because AI read Glassdoor, found out this is guy who berates all of his underlings, just mm -hmm. moved from company A to company B. I can fake yeah. their voice because they did a talk somewhere that's on YouTube. And suddenly I have a phone call to an underling where I'm berating them and asking for them to make a change. And I think a lot of security people have always told, I think we've always had somewhat of a skeptical eye on social media in general. And I think we've all probably said at one point or another, be very careful what all the details that you put on social media. But many people are like, but why? I've got nothing to hide. I think that the harvest time for all that information is going to be AI consuming it and then potentially using it or a set of scams and attacks and criminal activity that we can't even imagine at the moment. I talk like a pessimist, but I'm actually optimistic. <laughs> but I just want to say up front, yeah, we're, we're going to have to face quite a bit of challenges. I'm certainly happy that social media didn't exist for my misspent youth, because there's no yeah. proof of the stupid I did. <laughs> and I did. I'm quite certain I did some really stupid. I know I did some stupid things. I don't have to guess. So one of the things I do for all of the guests, and I think I once again forgot to warn you, but I'm going to spring it on you. I have this card deck okay, and I'm going to pull a random card out of the deck. I am shuffling them now in my hand. And these are just conversation starters. This grew out of the fact that my daughter was an RA in a dorm and she had to have these like interactions with the students she was minding. Mm -hmm. 
And so we got her this card deck and I thought, I looked at them when we gave her those for Christmas and I thought, this is kind of cool. I want that because I can use it for the podcast. So I'm going to ask you a completely unrelated to the stuff we've been talking about question that is randomly pulled off the deck. You got the four of diamonds. Which invention would be impossible for you to live without? Ooh, which invention would be impossible for me to live without? We're so, I mean, I'm so dependent on technology. I, it's hard to just pick one, right? Like, could you live without air conditioning? Could you live without refrigeration? Could you live without your cell phone, internet access? Could you live without cars, et cetera? I would say that at this point, I, I consider myself part cyborg because of my utter dependency on technology. So I'll admit, and this is a shameful confession, that I'm quite addicted to just using my phone at all times. I think people do this all the time. I see them just almost like a nervous reaction. If they put their phone down for three seconds, they'll remember their phone and they'll pick it back up. It's like this dopamine. We're all hamsters on the hamster wheel of dopamine provided by the novelty that our cell phones continuously generate. It's funny, this is not and that new of a phenomenon. I want to say it was the 2011 OWASP Summit that was in Portugal. I mm -hmm. was at that and we had I taken a break too. from, yeah, I was taking a break from one of the working sessions and a bunch of us went out and sat outside because it was a nice day. And I just remember like going out, everyone goes and sits out around, around this table, then everybody's phone pops up. And at the mm. time I was a Sprint customer and mm -hmm. they were CDMA. So when I went to Europe, that phone was a brick. So <laughs> I obviously couldn't pull out my phone. So I'm sitting here looking at everybody around me with their phones out and I have a brick in my pocket. So I yeah. just said, isn't it nice that we could all get together and talk? <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes I, I wonder if we should take a global timeout when it comes to our digital addiction and just say, okay, one day a month or one day a week, we just kind of all agree to do, do this. I've known a lot of people in tech who kind of do that. They'll go off and camp in the woods for a weekend or something and, and literally take no tech with them to detox. And I would think there is great value in that. I, like you, though, kind of like this junk a lot. I mean, honestly, I, I have an undergrad in economics because I got way deep into my degree before I realized people would pay me to fart around on computers. Right. Well, you know, it's funny when you just said people go and camp with no technology, even just those words, as you said those, gave me a pang of withdrawal <laughs> symptom. Like, what? Because <laughs> I put myself in that position. I'm like, that would be really, really, really difficult. It is the state of humanity at the moment. It is. Well, I super appreciate you taking this time. This was very, very interesting. I, I'm sure people got a lot out of this because it is interesting to think of AppSec from sort of that higher dimension and doing it at scale and in mass at a very large company is a very different thing than just running a small program at a small shop or just being an individual contributor. So it's good to have that perspective. If nothing else, people who listen to this, think about the fact that you're probably going to have to talk to those C-suite people, or at least mm -hmm. your manager, and now right. you know the language to use to get something done. Yep. Yep. And I would say if folks who are listening have any other questions or they want to contact me, it's just jerry at owasp.org. That's it. Awesome. Well, once again, thank you for this. This has been fantastic. And I appreciate you taking the time out. Thank you, Matt. Have a wonderful rest of the day. I'd like to thank Defect Dojo Inc. for making it possible for me to record this episode. Defect Dojo Inc. is a team of 
experienced technology and security professionals who build tools that actually provide peace of mind. They want all humans to sleep better knowing that their work is effective, their progress de-risked. Defect Dojo's flagship software offering is a security automation and vulnerability management platform that serves as a single source of truth. It can import results from more than 150 different security tools. It is a leader in the space with over 30 million downloads. Contact them at defectdojo.com for more information about their products and services.